So this morning I was driving to my first day at my brand new job and I turned on the radio and there was Nita Tonberg with this unbelievable story. I hadn't heard of this yet, but Lance Corporal Matthew Snyder is his name. He was a gay soldier killed in Iraq and there were these extreme protesters protesting his funeral while his parents mourned just because he's gay. And they're not just like protesting his funeral, but like, but like got holding signs that say God hates stags and, and implying that he should have died and that he was killed and, and all of our soldiers are being killed because of homosexuals in America. Andrea, these guys are everywhere. They're old news. They're the God hates fags people. Yeah, they're the God hates fags people. But get this. And this is, I, I'm like sitting there crying over the story and I had no idea the whole time. The God hates fags people, they're from Missouri. I live now in a state that breathes those terrifying extremists that are making me cry while I listen to public radio. Like, Hold on a second. I thought you moved to Kansas. Kansas City is in Kansas and Kansas City is also in Missouri. There's two? Yes. I've gone through my whole life not knowing that there are two Kansas cities. I guess it's one of those things you don't really have to know about. Like TV. Okay. I grew up in Midwestern suburbs, like same cookie cutter town with big box stores and big suburban neighborhoods. And they were all like nice Midwestern cities with excellent schools. And as I was growing up in these communities, then I like swore I would never move back. Like it was my biggest goal in the world to move out east, go to college, live in New York City. And I did all of that. Like I got to meet Moby then. You cannot tell me that it is okay to move to Kansas City now because you met Moby. That is not the highlight of your New York City life. Moby kissed my cheek then. I don't, he gave me his personal card. Oh my God. We had a connection. I'm just, I'm just saying. So, but like I, for me, I was like living the life, but, but I realized as I, as I left to start this new job, I, I had to drive through one of the towns where I used to live, West Des Moines, Iowa. And I had a beer with a friend from that town and I drove past my old house. And I just realized like, why did I run away from these places, these suburban suburbs? Like in these places, I can be a big shot. And in New York City, I was always just working to be a big shot. But I'm a big shot in Kansas City already. I feel like a genius here. I wasn't even thinking of this while I was doing all that crying in the car, but I've actually, I actually wear makeup now. Uh, before my job interview for this position, I did a how to wear makeup class at Aveda. And I now wear like mascara and eyeliner and eyeshadow because I have this idea that you gotta need to look professional to be taken seriously in my new job. I know how to put it on now. I just wasn't really thinking about how it seems to come off. So I'm sitting there in the parking lot outside of the human resources office, like cleaning up my eye makeup um, and making sure I look perfect for my big training day at human resources. It it was my first experience with any kind of interaction with the human resources department because at my last job, I was a contract freelancer and I never actually got to interact with HR until they until I was fired. <laughs> like I never got to read the like manual. I never got to learn about what, how benefits work, what a flex spending account is. And there I was in this HR meeting and it was like, yes, I am here. I've arrived in my adult life. And everyone else in the HR meeting were actually recently hired janitors. <laughs> so we went around in a circle and we all said what we were there for, what our new jobs are gonna be. And when it got to me, and I got to say that I was starting a job as a radio station. I just felt like like the coolest person in the world. I just felt like a big shot because they're all like, when's your radio show? What's the call numbers? You know, like, can we listen? Oh, wow, I love the radio. I listen when I clean classrooms. <laughs> like, it was really, I. it was really like my first moment announcing myself to Kansas City. You're saying you feel like a big shot because you're better than the janitors. Well, I mean, I was happy. We were all getting salaries and life insurance. And, and you know, like, they're getting this great job, too. Like, we're all signed up for a lot of security. I was really happy to, to, to get to say what I was here to do. And, and a lot of the janitors said that they were going to listen to the show. <laughs> This 
is your worst nightmare. It is. <laughs> it is. It totally is. No, there's nothing wrong with Kansas City. It's it's really nice here, Ben. If anyone who's ever lived here really loves it. Kansas City, something I heard about Kansas City before I even moved here, before I even considered a job here, was that they had this blossoming arts and culture scene. But when you say that to people here, they get kind of offended because they feel like it's already really arrived. I Giant. hear this all the time, actually. New York, L.A., Kansas City. I mean, that's what you read in all the art magazines. Wait, are you joking or are you serious? Andrea. Because I think... Of course I'm joking. Because I actually... I, I've heard from people that, that the Kansas City art scene is really phenomenal. People, uh, artists are choosing to live here. Uh, they're not living here because this is where they grew up and they hope to make it to New York someday. Like artists are choosing to live here. Artists who are represented by national galleries are, are ch all choosing to live here. And there's a lot of artistic collaboration that's happening across the city. Where? Where'd you hear that? I heard it on uh, the radio station. Well, then I guess we can look forward to a pretty awesome collaborative art project. You, the janitors, and the God Hates Fags people. Uh, okay. On November 14, 1775, the revolutionary forces were dealt a most cruel of blows. John Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmore, and the royal governor of the colony of Virginia issued a proclamation. Now, even though Lord Dunmore had been forced to abandon his estate at Williamsburg, he was still directing operations against the Patriots from his ship off the coast of Yorktown, and this proclamation was perhaps his greatest offensive move. Dunmore's proclamation offered freedom to all slaves belonging to rebels able to bear arms for the crown. It is the first large-scale emancipation of slave labor in American history. Within a month, several hundred slaves risked their lives in escape and joined him. It is a dark, dark moment for our freedom-loving ancestors because this put them in an impossible situation, in the middle, fighting both their British overlords and their rebelling slaves. The Virginia Convention quickly drafted a counter-proclamation, which reminded the slaves that the punishment for escape would be death, a horrible death without benefit of clergy or mercy. But still, freedom beckoned. It is estimated that up to 100,000 attempted escape. The men who did manage to reach Dunmore joined his Ethiopian regiment, and by December 1775, this regiment had nearly 300 blacks, including its most famous member, the escaped slave named Titus. Titus and his comrades wore regimental uniforms inscribed with the words, Liberty to Slaves. They believed they were not just fighting for their own individual freedom, but for freedom and liberty itself. During the winter of 1776, nearly half of Dunmore's forces were black, and when they fought against the North Carolina troops at the Battle of the Great Bridge, they captured two colonels. One was even taken by his former slave. News of this event spread like wildfire and only fueled Lord Dunmore's undoing, for he vastly misjudged how those not caught up in the loyalist or rebel cause, the great middle, would take his proclamation. The moderates exclaimed that Lord Dunmore's proclamation was blasphemy, a direct offense of their rights and dignities. But I think it was really the idea of being molested by one's property that kept them up at night. But regardless, they began to accept what the radicals had been saying for some time, that the protection of their freedoms and rights 
was worth fighting for. Unfortunately, the Ethiopian regiment did not get to see much battle. They were decimated by a smallpox outbreak in less than a year. And Titus died from a gangrene infection from a musket wound. When the war ended, the British, determined to make good on their promise of freedom, evacuated almost 300 former slaves to Nova Scotia. But the victorious Americans were just as determined to make an example of the slaves who had dared to interfere in their glorious fight for freedom. Some plantation owners even journeyed to the north, seizing blacks off the streets of New York and Boston. But they were the lucky ones. There are many accounts of former slaves who were executed in the most barbaric and horrific fashion. Decapitations, flayings, burnings. On one occasion, a 15-year-old girl is thrashed to death by her former master. And before she dies, he places hot embers in her wounds. I realize, of course, it's bad form to bring stuff up like this. Race and slavery do have a way of mucking up America's glorious historical narrative. But I must confess that all the outrage and all the shouting of late has set my overactive imagination spinning. And I just can't get this scene out of my head. I'm in a jail cell with a bunch of intellectuals and bohemians. And just beyond the bars, our jailers who are decked out in these red, white, and blue overalls, are arguing about our fate. One keeps shouting with determination, Well, what would the Founding Fathers do? But well, to better understand the Tea Party's actual relationship with American history, let's turn to Jill Lepore, who's a professor of American history at Harvard, a writer at The New Yorker, and the author of the new book, the Whites of Their Eyes, The Tea Party's Revolution, and the Battle over American History. Here at Harvard, I teach an undergraduate research course on the American Revolution, and I started for the first time in the spring of 2009, that semester. So right after the inauguration of Barack Obama, our semester began, and I and my students started <laughs> undertaking our investigation into the revolution. And that February, just a few weeks after the inauguration, the Tea Party movement began when CNBC commentator Rick Santelli delivered what came to be called the rant around the world. And he called for a new Tea Party to reject the Obama administration's bailout package and all of its economic policies. And my, so I had this sort of surreal experience of, you know, having breakfast, reading the newspaper, seeing people dressed up in 18th century costumes saying the time for revolution has come again, we are enduring taxation without representation, we're calling ourselves the Tea Party. And then I'd go teach my students <laughs> where we'd discuss, you know, the historiography and scholarly debates about the revolution and its origins. And then we'd traipse around Boston because the course has a big field trip component. And after some while, we began kind of bumping into people <laughs> who were interested in the Tea Party for very different reasons than we were interested in it as as students and as teachers. It turns out that the Boston chapter of the Tea Party was meeting at a place called the Green Dragon Tavern that is actually a site on the Freedom Trail. It's this kind of, uh, sort of pseudo 18th century tavern and it's where the Sons of Liberty met in the 1760s and you know plotted uh, their resistance to British authority to parliamentary authority. So uh, that too was fascinating just that the, that the people in the Tea Party here took so seriously their connection to the Sons of Liberty and to the struggles of the 18th century that they wanted to kind of meet in those same places and it's a sort of a version of wearing the tri-cornered hat and the knee breeches and waving the Constitution around um, so I decided I really ought to go try to find out more about them it's not that often as a scholar of the 18th century <laughs> anyone is especially interested <laughs> in what you study. But for these people, uh, there seemed to be a kind of easy collapsing of the distance in time between the 1770s and the present, that so somehow our struggle is like theirs. This is just like in 1773. We are just like the Sons of Liberty. Um, I found this shocking, <laughs> frankly. Shocking like these people are stupid or shocking like this does not bode well for the future of the country? There are two chief 
misinterpretations of the 18th century, I would say, that have important consequences. One is um, the idea that the 18th century was a simpler, quieter time marked by unity and less divisiveness. When in fact, uh, and especially, I think for a lot of these people, the 18th century is a kind of time before race. And so they've got these white founders and their white wigs. And this is not to say that the movement is racist at all, but to say that the fantasy, in fact, the longing for a time of unity, it, it finds a home, an easy purchase in this fable of the 18th century. When in fact, the 18th century was not an easy and less uh, troubled time. And certainly the story of slavery is integrally tied into the story of liberty as you know, all scholars who study this period will tell you. And as if you examine the writings of uh, 18th century writers will be abundantly obvious. So I think to, to sort of to, to take the story of slavery out of American history is a very dangerous thing. You say this isn't racist, but why would anyone other than a racist want to take race out of history? Yeah, no, I think they are linked. There was an interesting poll done, I think USA Today did it in the spring, uh, asking people who, who identified themselves as sympathetic to the Tea Party whether they thought everyone in the United States had an equal chance at an education or an equal chance at employment and an equal chance at economic success. And I talked to the reporter who was writing a story about that poll, and she said, you know, you can't actually ask people, you know, are you racist? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not a thing you can measure in that way as a pollster. Um, but you can measure whether people think that um, we all have, we, we all start out with an equal chance in life and that there is no such thing as discrimination anymore. And people in the Tea Party represent that view, hold that view disproportionately to people in the general population. And I don't think, I mean, I, and so I think there's a, a, a generous reading of that um, would be to say that these are people who are exhausted by racial struggle and want to imagine that we live in a post-racial age. I talked to a lot of people in the Tea Party who felt very strongly about this, you know, that, that racism was a thing of the past, that racial inequality was a thing of the past, and to harp on it was, and, and to, to structure, certainly to structure government programs around the premise that it exists, uh, was an act of injustice to them. And this is something that a lot of people said and, and believed, and I do think that having a version of American history, a version of the American Revolution that does not involve paying attention to the agonizing struggle over slavery during that period is makes holding those views more possible and so therefore i think worrying now you said there were two things that worried you as a historian what's the second thing the the second thing is i, I there's a, and this is perhaps more widespread there there's a um within and around this movement and certainly in the far right is is a is an often stated belief that the founding fathers were prophets that the constitution was divinely inspired and is holy writ and speaks to us across the ages in a timeless and ageless way uh, it comes alive to us the way the gospel with jesus's witnessing in the gospel comes alive to us today People, people will say that very explicitly. Um, and that amounts to what I call historical fundamentalism. It is to take a religious view, a very certain and particular kind of religious view, religious fundamentalism, and apply it to the study of the past. And it's antithetical, of course, to the ideas of the Enlightenment, which were themselves based on skepticism, and which is where the historical profession today gets its premise of investigative inquiry and empirical research. So, um, you know, I would, I, I have spoken to people in the movement who would say, you know, we don't have, we, we would never have the audacity to question the words of great men. Well, that is actually what the study of history is. It is actually interrogating documents and thinking about things, but th th nothing could be further from the truth than that the founding fathers were, uh, themselves eager to have their words taken in this reverential way. I mean, you know, Jefferson is per perhaps the person who said it best when he said, you know, some men will um, look upon constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them like the Ark of the Covenant too sacred to be touched. They will they will grant to the, to the people of a previous age a wisdom greater than human. And, and that cannot, we cannot abide that because laws must go pro hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. That was the sensibility of the political philosophers of the 18th century, not one of abject reverence of documents. I mean, Madison also said, 
um, that the glory of America was that we do not blindly venerate the past. So uh, that that misconception is, I think, quite important because if you bring in that element of fundamentalism to how we think about the founding documents, we no longer have a pluralist political culture where we can debate how to proceed as a polity. We have one group of people saying that they know what God revealed to the founding fathers in this document who can tell everybody else that they're blasphemers for questioning it. You know, it's religious fundamentalism. It is turning the Constitution into a religion. I was at this dinner party in Rome a while ago, and and I was sitting next to a, a poet from New York. It was at the American Academy in Rome. And she asked where I live, and I said Minnesota. And she was completely flabbergasted, like, she was like, how is it possible you haven't moved? As though I'm living, you know, on the prairie or something. And it's so corny, but I mean, this is a huge chunk of America. And, and, and it is worthwhile space. I mean, it's, uh, there are a lot of nuances and a lot of interesting things out here. Alex Soth still lives and works in the town he grew up in, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he's probably the most famous contemporary American photographer who doesn't live on the East or West Coast. Currently, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis is celebrating its native son with a giant career retrospective, an exhibit called From Here to There, Alex Soth's America. When I got the catalog in the mail, I kind of laughed because Alex Soth once wrote in his blog how much he hates photo books that use America in the title. Books like American Surfaces, In the American West, American Monument, American Musicians, (laughs) Model American, American Color, The Americans. I guess in that case, I'm talking about personal projects. I mean, this this is a collaborative event, uh, doing a survey exhibition like this. And there was a lot of discussion about the title of this. But uh, with my own projects, you know, Sleeping by the Mississippi, I make that up. That's my call. an exhibition like this, there there are marketing teams. There are <clears throat> there are other people involved. The show is called From Here to There, uh, and then there's the subtitle. Yes, Alex Soth's America. Yeah, but this is sort of a nod to the fact that many people now see you, and especially with this exhibit, as an official photographer of America. You know, in the tradition of Robert Frank or Joel Sternfeld. And is this what you set out to do or become? Uh, I mean, in the beginning, uh, <clears throat> when I was being educated, I, I was so profoundly influenced by the American tradition of photography. I mean, it, there's no avoiding it. I mean, that, in that sort of American-centric way, I, uh, it, that, that was my education and that was what I was inspired by. I am an American photographer. I, I happen to be, I think, better photographing in America than elsewhere so, yeah, America is my subject. Now, your first big work, Sleeping by the Mississippi, is a journey along the Mississippi River, which runs in the middle of the country. And you mm-hmm. live in Minneapolis, where you were born, in middle America. Do you get a sense, though, that in some of the attention you're getting, you know, the way you're called an American photographer, that America has almost been waiting for someone like you to come along? An American photographer who is not from L.A. or New York? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's. I mean, I am, I'm proud. <laughs> that boy, I, I am sounding like Sarah Palin. I, I'm proud to be an American. No, but I'm. Uh, I th- there's a part of me that that living in the middle is something that I, you know, I I am proud of in a funny way, because it just seems like if you're gonna have if if the goal is to have a new perspective on things or a different perspective on things. It seems to make sense that you that you might come from a different place and and even stay in that place to continue seeing the the world in a in a slightly different way. The show has a lot of your work from your two major projects, Sleeping by the Mississippi and Niagara, your exploration of romantic love, naked couples in empty hotel rooms in Niagara Falls. But we also get to see a lot of work you haven't shown before. One of the series that really grabbed my attention is Single Goth Seek Same. What is this about? Single Goth Seek Same is, um, is a project that I did just recently, just a little short story. You know, I have this interest in 
is people that are that that want to separate themselves from society but want to be part of society as well. And I had this interesting goth subcultures because it's the ultimate example of uh, of uh, people sort of saying out loud, I don't want to be part of regular society. And I was particularly drawn to goths in the South because there's a, even a, a further disconnect. They're saying, I don't want to be part of this larger, you know, sort of Christian uh, uh, gentrified culture. And, and then I, you know, surfing around online, I found these goth dating websites and began poking around in that little world and, and started, you know, reaching out and, and meeting these different women and then photographing them. And this is really, you know, common practice now to use, to use, you know, Craigslist and tools like this to meet people. There's one picture in particular I really love. It's it's called Linda at Brothers Service Station. It's mm. got this goth woman uh, putting gas into her black Mustang on the right. And on the left, you have this laid-back African-American dude who's filling his white pickup mm. truck. And there's all this stuff that's kind of separating them in the middle of the picture, you know, the, the median, the, the, the gas pumps. Right. But she's definitely looking at him in this weird way. There's definitely a connection. Well, it's, uh, you know, I can uh, tell you the story behind that picture, which is, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's pretty fascinating. Because, uh, so, I, you know, I go online, go on this dot dating website, and I meet this woman, Linda. And... <clears throat> I mean, this is where real life gets more interesting <laughs> than online. So I, I meet her, and she, you know, she's a full-on goth woman. Um, but she tells me this that uh, you know she lives in, in New Orleans, and she tells me that she's really attracted to black men, and that she often goes to this very service station called Brothers Service Station uh, to try to pick up men. And th- this was really interesting to me. Um, this, these different cultures clashing in real life, but, but then she's got this online life, this online identity. It's fascinating, complicated and, uh, uh, and not necessarily, you know, politically correct or whatever, but it's, it's, it's sort of edgy and alive. Well, I wasn't expecting that, but I guess it is a good example of, you know, what you always write about about photographs and stories that while pictures are great at suggesting stories, mm. they're not so good at telling them. Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, this is my big struggle as a photographer. It's like to tell the story, to not tell the story. Uh, to leave these big gaps where, where viewers can look at the picture and, and imagine what's going on. Or do I re- really want to flesh it out? And, and lately I've been doing little experiments where I... I, I do. I'll write out the whole story or tell it or, or what have you. You're doing a lot of experimentation uh, with stories and pictures online. I already mentioned your blog, but you also use Flickr and Facebook. And you have an amazing Tumblr site where you show off all the photo books that people are sending <laughs> you. And it's hard not to get jealous of that, by the way. <laughs> but can you talk about how the internet plays such a major role in your work? Yeah, I mean... Uh, so when I was coming up as a photographer, I was, you know, as we spoke about, I was really, you know, excited about that American tradition, Robert Frank on the road, all of that. Um, but then here's this new thing, the internet, which, you know, we love, we love all those metaphors of the, you know, what, what they call it, the, the information superhighways, what they used to call it. And, uh, but it had, it, it, there was this quality when you first got exposed to the web where it's like you're bouncing around, you're surfing, you're wandering online. And, and there, somehow the, the idea came to merge that experience, wandering out, around online, and then do it in the real world. So take the research uh, from, from web surfing and then go out and follow it up. And, uh, and really... That, that's still like a, a key part of my practice. And the, the title of the exhibition from here to there is actually refers to web surfing as much as it does to driving around in a car. Yeah, but I, I think it's important to make a distinction here because you're not just a photographer with a website. I mean, what's fascinating about your work and what ties it so much to the present moment is the way you sort of think like the internet. 
It seems mm. that you know you really explored how the internet has completely changed photography. Well, I, I th- yes, I think I think about it a lot, but I, I don't have answers for it. I mean, I have a, <clears throat> a real love hate relationship with the online world. Uh, we all do, you know, Alec. Yeah, I, I guess I guess we all do. But I and I think it's very while it's a great tool for me and for photographers, it's also really dangerous. I mean, we're, you know, a Magnum photographer once said to me, we're in the business of making iconic images, you know, and sort of making that, that one great picture. This was the photographer, Dennis Stock, you know, made the, the, the famous picture of James Dean walking down, uh, uh, Times Square. And, and these sort of you know big iconic pictures, and the internet, the flood of images takes a lot of that power away. And 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 as you're saying, as you're as you're you know going through Flickr or you know these these Tumblr sites, just image after image. Um, sometimes that that hunger for more is taking away the preciousness of the of the individual picture. Speaking of Magnum, you've been a member of this photojournalist collective for a, a few years now. Uh, you wrote early on how it was weird being the only fine artist in the group. But I'm, I'm really curious to hear about what you've learned about journalism from being in Magnum. I'm really uncomfortable calling myself a journalist. Uh, I, you know, I've, done, I've had moments where I've done jobs and I, and, and I I sort of take on that mantle for a moment, but um, there is a crisis in photojournalism because you know everyone's got a cell phone camera, so people are documenting things all the time. And so, what does that leave the professional journalist to do? I mean, I'm uncomfortable with being called a documentary photographer in a lot of ways. I mean, I photograph along the Mississippi River, but it's really it's it's all about me and my own interests and 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 where the things i want to look at i'm not i'm not documenting you know tugboats and and any sort of official record of the mississippi and that's pretty much everywhere i go that that's the same thing i i'm always wary of like saying this is you know niagara falls it's it's not uh, it's it's my little glimpse at it so that's what I'm uncomfortable with is is pure documentation anymore because as I said all documentation's going on all the time so it's it's taking a document over here and a document over there and connecting them and using you know your creative resources to make connections between things that that's where sparks are created and and you can get a hopefully you know a fresh perspective on the world really struck when I was spending time with people in the Tea Party in Boston, people I liked a lot and was really interested in hearing what they thought about American politics and about American history, by how much the activism reminded me of some of the protests of the bicentennial. So if you think about the 200th anniversary of the American Revolution, what a big deal that was. It was a really big deal here in Massachusetts where I I grew up. And every time I'd see these people with their tri-cornered hats and invoking memory of the memory of the revolution I, I sort of swamped with memories of the bicentennial my own kind of childhood experience of going to the march the freedom trail and i remembered going to the boston tea party ship and dumping the tea into the harbor this kind of replica ship i had a really strong memory of that i was like well, whatever happened to that ship <laughs> so because i i remembered bringing my kids to it years ago and um I went down to, you know, where it used to be docked in, in Boston Harbor. It's not there anymore. It turns out it was set on fire and was up in, is now up in Gloucester for repairs. And so I went up to see it in Gloucester and climbed on board. And I just was really flooded with memories of, of the Bicentennial. And then I went into the archives and investigated that. And if you think about those, those years from sort of 1965 to 1976 were the years of the bicentennial celebration when the federal government was attempting to organize a national celebration of the American Revolution, kind of beginning with the 200th anniversary of the Stamp Act and ending with the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Those were very unhappy years in the United States. We're looking at the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and Malcolm X on the heels of the assassination of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King. We're looking at 
and Vietnam. We're looking at very difficult years in the civil rights movement, the shootings at Kent State in 1970, which happened just two months after the anniversary of the Boston Massacre. And by 1973, when a bunch of guys in Boston have brought over this replica 18th century ship for the 200th anniversary of the dumping of the tea, Nixon is being impeached for the Watergate scandal. So no one knows how to celebrate the founding of the United States. There's just this kind of political free-for-all where, especially on the left, but also on the right, everyone wants to make the argument, oh, it is just like it was 200 years ago. So during the Boston massacre reenactments in the in 1970, the Vietnam veterans against the war want to say, oh yeah, the Kent State shooting is just like this. And in the 18th century, they were so opposed to a standing army and that's why we shouldn't be in Vietnam or... You know, during the dumping of the tea, people got on board, the protesters got on board the ship and disrupted the reenactment, calling for Nixon's impeachment. People in 1974 in Boston argued that they were acting in the tradition of the Sons of Liberty by opposing busing, the integration of Boston's public schools. I mean, there was this kind of political free-for-all with, like, rampant analogies to the American Revolution. And Historians at just kind of that, academic historians at just that moment had really kind of backed out of public conversation about history, partly, I think, quite appalled by this hucksterish and sort of shameless use of the story of the nation's founding by political activists of all stripes. But again, I think maybe more especially from the left. And so the kind of story of the nation's founding as any kind of unifying story completely unraveled. And so when I would see people here in Boston or, you know, just looking at rallies across the country and studying the rhetoric of people who were, you know, purportedly leaders of the Tea Party movement, what these people seemed to want, I think, so desperately was a story about who we are as a people that made sense to them and that wasn't so disaggregated and wasn't so ridden with conflict as what emerged from that bicentennial moment. So today, then, as we battle over history again, do you see a path that we can take as a country, a way out or way forward? Well, you know, I think that there exists, and academic historians have been writing a, a, a pluralist and thoughtful history of the United States, and it exists in the best textbooks, and it exists in the best classrooms. I think it exists in the best elementary schools. I think it is actually out there. It's now that it's just being so defied by people who want to insist on this interpretation as being a left-wing conspiracy. <laughs> you know, because uh, the the story of the United States is a story of conflict and a story of struggle and a story of many different kinds of people struggling with one another to seek what is the best promise and meaning of the ideals of, of the founding. I think, I mean, I was really moved when I was working on this book by reading a speech that Thurgood Marshall gave in 1987 at the 200th anniversary of the drafting of the Constitution. This was the year that Robert Bork was nominated for the Supreme Court, and there was much debate about originalism, and there was much hoopla about the Constitution. And, and, and from the far right, there was much of this kind of, oh, it was divinely inspired and it's incontrovertible. And Marshall said, you know, he was the first African-American on the Supreme Court. He had argued in Brown v. Board, Brown v. the Board of Education in 1954. Uh, he, he had a lot to say uh, about the history of racial inequality in the United States. He had a lot of experience with it. And he said, you know, asked to give a speech on the occasion of the bicentennial of the Constitution. I will not celebrate the Constitution with blind veneration. I will not make a blind pilgrimage to the National Archives and worship a document that was flawed at the start. I will celebrate quietly and not by flag waving. I will celebrate quietly this Constitution as a living document, and I will especially celebrate the 200 years of struggle by Americans who have sought to realize um, and, to, and to bring into the world the, the rights that it guaranteed. So the other night, I come home, and I'm walking up the steps to my apartment, and there's this cute girl standing in front of my door. She's like... Um, do you, do you know what time it is? And I, I'm, I'm reaching in my pocket to, to pull out my cell phone because I don't, I don't want to watch. And bam, I get hit in the back of the head and knocked out. Oh, my God, the iPhone thieves. I've been reading about them. No, dude, this, this was not about my iPhone. I come to in my kitchen. 
and I'm in a chair. My hands are tied behind my back, and there are two women standing there. And one is the cute one from outside, and the other one is like this scary bulldog, spiky hair, leather jacket. She's clearly the one who hit me. Now, I've had fantasies of being tied up by two women before, but this, this wasn't really what I had in mind. They see that I've come to, and the, the bulldog, she, she reaches down, grabs my shirt, and starts shaking me. She says, where is it? We know you have it. Now, I try to sound calm and tough, like you're supposed to when you're getting interrogated, but I'm, but I'm scared. So I say something like, why do you ladies have me tied up in my kitchen? So the cute one kind of pushes the, the, the ugly one back and leans in and looks at me and says, look, we want the crucifix. We know you took it from Mary's apartment and we just want it back and we'll leave. Wait a minute. You stole that Glenn Beck crucifix thing from that teabagger lady you went home with? Dude, of course I stole it. It was it was a cru- it was a red, white and blue American flag crucifix with Glenn Beck on it. Who would ever believe this story if I didn't have this thing? But, you know, now I got two women tying me up in my kitchen. Maybe they're going to torture me. I don't know. I mean, I don't want the thing that bad. <laughs> so I just look at the girl. I say, yeah, okay. It's, it's upstairs. It's in my, it's in my closet, uh, in my bedroom. She takes off upstairs and, uh, the bulldog one is like looking at me just with this disgust on her face she has this leather jacket on she unzips the leather jacket she takes the leather jacket off and you know she's she's wearing a wife beater she's covered in tattoos and she comes over and i just figure she's just gonna beat the crap out of me i mean it's right out of a movie she leans over she reaches down grabs me by the throat and says we wouldn't be in this situation if Hillary was in charge. When someone tells you that no matter what you say, they will not change their minds, then the conversation is over. You have to stomp on their throat and move on and do what you have to do for America. She told Obama this and he wouldn't listen. You can't compromise with these bastards. Now, I'm trying to take this all in, but I'm a little distracted because she was, you know, bent over me and I could see right down her shirt and she had a tattoo right in between her breasts that said in like this gothic Nazi font, Hillraiser. And she catches me, she catches me looking down her shirt and she looks over, she grabs this giant meat cleaver that I have, she pulls her arm back She is going to embed this thing in my skull. But then the cute one walks back into the kitchen and grabs her arm before she can swing. And this kind of like throws the cute one off balance a little bit. And the crucifix slips out of her hand and falls onto the floor. And when it hits the floor, it starts talking. The Glenn Beck's crucifix starts talking. Smash the glass. Smash the glass. The the girl reaches down and grabs it, picks it up and, you know, does something. And she puts it in her bag. And the butch one looks at her and says, he knows too much. I think I think we should kill him. So the cute one says, just knock him out again. And she rears back and just decks me, knocks me cold.
I wake up the next morning on the floor in the kitchen. I'm not tied up anymore. My head hurts like crazy. And I look up and it's like 10 a.m. And I'm like, oh, oh God, I'm going to be late for work. So you wake up from a home invasion where you were tied up and knocked out. And your first thought is getting to work on time. Well, when you get the memo for the all staff meeting, and I had gotten like 10 of them the day before, it, it's serious. And I knew like I had to get there fast. So I jump in the shower, I get cleaned up, I throw on a suit, I jump in a cab, head down to the Office of Information. It turns out that the meeting was about Hillary and Obama. There's been speculation and discussion in the media about. Hillary maybe swapping places with Vice President Biden so that she can run uh, as vice presidential candidate for the ticket in 2012. And there's even been talk of her running against Obama in 2012. You guys are facing a route. In a few weeks, you're facing a full-on route. And you're telling me that you're having meetings to talk about who said what or who's doing what about 2012? Look, there, there are a decent number of former Clinton people on the team. And we, you know, we have to get along. Stuff like this can cause problems. So this was just about you know, getting the facts out, just you know, dispelling the rumors and getting everybody on the same page. Obviously, at this meeting, there's a lot of people from state on, on Secretary Clinton's team, and so they were there. And I, I know, I, I spot in the meeting, I spot this woman that I know named Liza. And so as the meeting's breaking up, we'll walk out, and I, I, I've, I've had a few drinks with her in the past, and so I, I, I kind of pull her aside as we're walking out of this meeting. And so I say, Hey, Liza, I know this is going to sound strange, but does the term hill raiser mean anything to you? And she's like, dude, don't you ever watch Fox? You haven't heard him talk about the hill raisers, Hillary's secret army? Like supposedly she has this elite group of women foot soldiers doing her bidding in the shadows and the corridors of power. And she just kind of laughs. Just like, it's just like this meeting. I mean, it's just as baseless as the rumors we just talked about in there. It's just another sexist, misogynist rumor, you know, put out by the mainstream press to humiliate and discredit the secretary. But then she she drops her pen on the ground. And when she bends down to pick it up, I can see down her blouse. And she has the Hellraiser tattoo. The same one as the other chick. Now, I know that I need to get out of here fast. I'm kind of freaked out. I'm like, I'm out of here. I say, see ya. And I just take off. I get outside and I head to the nearest liquor store. Basically just spent the afternoon wandering the streets, sipping whiskey out of a paper bag. When it gets dark, I find myself sitting in this park down in the southeast and across the street there's this warehouse and I notice all these women are going inside I know this is gonna sound insane but up walks Liza and the bulldog that knocked me out the night before so I walk to the corner and all the women have gone inside and I'm staring at this door and I'm like, I gotta get in there somehow. Across the street, there's this sex shop with a sign in the window that says, costumes. 10 minutes later, I walk out of the sex shop dressed as a fetish little Bo Peep and I walk into the warehouse. When my eyes get accustomed to the darkness, I realize that I'm in a room full of hundreds of women, all holding those red, white, and blue Glenn Beck crucifixes. 
and there is a woman standing on a stage. And she says, my sisters, everything is going according to the plan. We have 80,000 of these crucifixes placed in the bedrooms of Tea Party women all across America, transmitting our subliminal messages. Look how many female Tea Party candidates there are. And at this point, all the women raise those crucifixes in the air. And they all start shouting together, smash the glass ceiling, smash the glass ceiling. So she holds up her hands to quiet the crowd. She says, my sisters, we are now ready to move into the final phase. We will transfer the loyalty and goodwill that women across America feel towards our misguided Tea Party sisters to our true leader. Tonight, those women will be hearing a new message. She holds the cross up above her head and out of Glenn Beck's little mouth, we hear, Hill, baby, hill. Hill, baby, hill. And all of the women in that crowd start chanting along, Hill, baby, hill. 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 Suddenly, my little Bo Peep wig gets caught on the crucifix of the woman chanting behind me and comes off my head. The jig is up. A thousand crucifixes start wailing on me and I black out again. When I come to, I'm in a dumpster in an alley somewhere. I'm still wearing my little Bo Peep costume and surprisingly still clutching my half-drunk bottle of whiskey, but I don't know how I got there. Chris, there is no way I'm going to believe that Hillary Clinton is behind the Tea Party. It's totally 100% preposterous. Is it any more preposterous than a Republican astroturfed fake populist organization called the Tea Party? This episode of Too Much Information is called Beyond the Fruited Plain, Part 2. It was written and produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, and featured Andrea Salenzi, Jill Lepore, Alex Soth, and our TMI Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris. Special thanks to Dan Jones. Tune in next week for the grand finale. For even more information and archives and podcasts, visit the TMI playlist page at wfmu.org.